So let's read from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Lord, help us to, to understand what you have written here for us. Lord, I pray that, that by hearing from your Spirit and your Word and seeing Christ glorified, that you would give our trials a new perspective, us a new perspective on trials, and that we would, we would know, Lord, what it means to seek you in wisdom. So help us, Lord, give us understanding, and may I not be a distraction to your people. In Christ's name, amen. May sit down. In, um, in 1852, a 19-year-old young man showed up to preach at what was then called New Park Street Chapel in London, and his, his first sermon there was from James chapter 1, and that young man's name was Charles Spurgeon, and I'm not Charles Spurgeon, and what I'm about to tell you really has nothing to do with that preacher. <laughs> but what I want to tell you about is the man who preached the Sunday before. The Sunday before that first Sunday when Charles Spurgeon preached in that pulpit, and that man's name was Pastor James Smith. You've never heard of James Smith. I, well, maybe you have, but I had not before this week. Um, Pastor Smith lived a, a relatively short life in today's terms, and he preached in... Um, what was then a small church, troubled church, with a big, empty auditorium. And during his ministry, Pastor Smith wrote a little 30-page booklet called Comfort for Christians, How to Serve and Persevere in Times of Suffering. Comfort for Christians, How to Serve and Persevere in Times of Suffering. You can get that book on the uh, distributor, from the distributor of your choice. You can read it online. Uh, but in that book, Pastor Smith talks, said this about trials of various kinds. So we see that in, in, in verse 1, or verse 2, trials of various kinds. He says, at times we will have many trials and sorrows. Trials within. A violent conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Trials without, vexations, disappointments, heavy losses, rugged crosses, trials in the body, weakness and pain, trials in the soul, temptation and a thousand fears, trials in the church, much to depress, discourage and cast us down, trials in the world, enough to make us weep day and night. And that pretty well sums up all the various types of trials, doesn't it? These, these trials of various kinds that, that James is talking about here. And the question in our text this morning that James answers for us is, what is all this for? What, what are all these trials for? Why does God, in his infinite wisdom, ordain trials like these for his people. So here's the approach that we're going to take this morning, and we'll do it in three phases. The first, phase one, part one, what is the connection between faith and trials? Part two, what does this have to do with wisdom? And part three, we're going to examine these various trials, the ones that, that, that Pastor Smith shared with us in light of this morning's passage. All right, so 
Let's, let's begin. Remember last week at the very end of verse 1. So look at verse 1 at the very end. He says, greetings. James says, greetings. And that word in the Greek, we ended with this last week, is, is a word that we translate as, as greetings, but what, what actually can be translated as rejoice. It's a common greeting, and the one he chose when the one, was the one that means to be, to be joyful. Rejoice. And it's actually very similar to a word that we find here in verse 2. When he says, to consider it pure joy, count it all joy, that word joy there is related to the word rejoice or greetings in, in verse 1. So, so, so what James is doing here is introducing a play on words in the original language. And we could translate it like this in order to draw that out. He, he, what you could translate this as is, have joy, brothers and sisters, be joyful Truly joyful, even when you meet various trials. So be joyful, rejoice, greetings. Be joyful even when you meet various trials. Which is, does that sound similar to you or familiar to you? Romans 5, very, very similar to what Paul says in Romans 5. Turn, turn with me over to Romans 5. Hold your, your finger, your thumb, your pinky finger there in James. Turn back to Romans. It's, it's right after the book of Acts and to, to chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, which is page 942 in that Pewback Bible, the apostle says this to the church in Rome. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through Jesus Christ, we, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, so the reason for Christian rejoicing, that the grounds for our having a, a joyful disposition, is that Christ has justified us before God. We stand before God in grace through faith in Christ. And that's a it's a really good grounds for a joyful disposition. That's, it's a reason to rejoice. It's a reason to celebrate. But then Paul goes on. He says, not only that, not only should you rejoice in the justification, not only should you rejoice in your salvation, verse 3, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How's that? I can see how we'd say, yes, I Praise God that you have saved me in Christ. How can we say, praise God, I'm suffering? Well, Paul goes on in verse 3. He says, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So to summarize that, because we have the Holy Spirit... We, as Christians, those who have been born again in Christ, we're able to endure sufferings, and that produces further endurance, which produces character in us, which is the virtues, and hope. And hope is looking forward to the resurrection life. Suffering, or rather endurance through suffering, has this effect, Paul says, of cutting off our love of the world and the things of this world and sanctifying us, giving us a, a heavenly-mindedness. That's what hope is. The corollary to this is that if we do not suffer trials, if we do not endure trials in this life, then we will not have endurance. And so character and hope normally produced in us by the Spirit through endurance, will not be produced in us. And so we will not continue in the faith to the end. That's what Paul's arguing in Romans 5, and that's exactly what James is teaching us here. Rejoice, greetings, rejoice, even in sufferings because, look at verse 2, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. All right, so that's, that's it. Why does our faith need testing? What? Have you thought about that? What? We, we read that and we go, oh, yes, that's a good Christian truth, but why? That's all I do when I read the Bible. I say, why? 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 A three-year-old is what makes a preacher out of me. 
Why? Why does our faith need testing? Isn't faith, isn't faith just accepting Jesus and committing my life to him? Isn't that what faith is? And if I've done that, then why does that need testing? Well, we need to be careful with our definitions here as we think about this testing of the faith that James is talking about. Because if, if faith is simply believing that Jesus is the Christ, and if salvation by faith is simply saying Jesus is the Christ and you're saved, then this whole testing of our faith really doesn't, doesn't make sense. How, how can you test something that's already happened and been proven? Something that, how do, you, how do you test that? This is where we need to understand that salvation is more complex than a one-off event. There are multiple facets to salvation. There is, there's first of all, election. That is the idea that salvation belongs to God, begins with God. He predestines or elects people for salvation. So Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And you see there in Ephesians 1, this happened from eternity past. So there's election or predestination. And then you have justification. And this is typically what we're thinking of as Christians when we think about salvation. It's this idea of being forgiven and made right with God. That's, that's justification. But even, even justification comes in a Trinitarian form. It's not as simplistic as we make it. God the Father from eternity past decreed that the elect would be justified. God the Son came into time and died for our sins on the cross at a point in time that we would be justified. But you personally are not justified until God the Spirit applies Christ's work to you. And that work of the Spirit causing you to be born again when you hear and believe the word of Christ, leading you to repentance, giving you faith that unites you to Christ, that happens in a moment, in your lifetime. That's typically the only thing that we're talking about when we talk about salvation, but it's much bigger than that in the Scriptures. Because what we see in the Scriptures is that having been justified... Our salvation is not yet complete. Something else that needs to happen. We must be sanctified. And sanctification is a process, the length of which is determined by God himself. It wasn't a very long process for the thief on the cross, was it? It was much longer for John the Apostle, who lived and lived and lived and outlived all the other apostles. Now, here's the thing. Here's what we need to be careful with here when we, talked about, when we talk about sanctification. This is where you can accidentally go to Rome, which we will try to avoid this morning. Here's the thing. Just as election is all of God and, and justification is all of God, so is sanctification. Sanctification this process of becoming more holy, more Christ-like, this happens through the Spirit's work in us. So it cannot be said that we are adding to God's work when we undergo sanctification. Rather, we are experiencing God's work in us. That's the difference. We're experiencing God's work in us. You may not experience your justification. You probably didn't. But you do experience the sanctification process because it's, it's painful. We are experiencing God's work in us. And here is what we experience. And I'm just going to be reading from one of the old Baptist confessions here. We experience by the word, the, the, the word and the spirit dwelling in us, the sin in us is destroyed. And the desires of the flesh in us are more and more weakened and killed. And we are more and more made alive in the faith. We are strengthened in the faith. And so we look forward to eternity with more eagerness. And we find ourselves less and less at home on earth. And all of this leads to more and more obedience to God's word and real, true spirit-wrought holiness in us, without which, Hebrews says, we will not see God. So how does this happen? 
Well, this is what happens through the Spirit, through the means of grace God has given us. Hearing the Word preached, seeing Christ in the Scriptures. It happens through, through baptism. It happens through receiving the Lord's Supper. It happens through prayer and fasting and giving. These are means of grace, means through which God, through His Spirit, strengthens our faith, gives us greater assurance, and prepares us for eternity. And what James is saying here in James chapter 1 is that trials sent by God are also means of grace, means through which Christ sanctifies his people. So why then does our faith need trials in order to be, to be tested? So that in the testing of our faith, by the Spirit in us, we, we, we endure the trials. And so our faith is strengthened, and as our faith is strengthened, it has this sanctifying effect in us. And you're like, you're just repeating what James said. Okay, well, think of this. Think, think, of, think of the Pacific Coast Trail, or Crest Trail, 2,650 2, miles from Manning Park, British Columbia, all the way to Campo at the Mexican border. And think of the, the trials that James is describing here as, as mountains. So on this five or six month hike, you hit a mountain and you work your way over it. And it has these three effects. One is that you're one mountain closer to the end. That's good. So you're encouraged. Hey, I'm closer than I was yesterday. I'm closer to the end. I'm closer to, to finishing. Two, the second effect is after your, your, your muscles have undergone the stress and you've had time to recover, now you're stronger than you were before that mountain. Right? You are, you're, you're more prepared for the next mountain. And the third effect is, is more mental. You look back at that last mountain and you think, I didn't think I could do that one, but it turns out I could. I bet I could do the next one too. That's, that's the, what's happening in that five-month journey. But the difference between hiking the Crest Trail and the Christian life is that in the Christian life, what you experience is God, through the Holy Spirit, enabling you to endure the trial. It's not, it's not your strength. So what actually gets stronger is not your muscles, but your God-given faith. So when you look back at each successive trial, you don't look back at it and say, I am strong, I am smart, I am so good at this. Rather, you look back at each of those trials, and you say, Lord, as we sang, I am a sinner through and through. There is no way I could have endured that in my power, my strength alone. I could not have endured that had you not reminded me of the hope that I have in Christ. I would have fallen apart, abandoned the faith, were it not for the comfort of your spirit. And so, so with each of these successive trials, you look back at the previous one and say, that was hard, but I'm closer to eternity with Jesus now. My faith has been made stronger, and I know that by the Spirit in me and through my hope in Christ, I will also endure the next trial. And as you grow accustomed to this, and you realize this is the way to the kingdom, there's, not, there's no shortcuts, you can't climb over any walls, there's, there's, there's no boat, there's no airplanes, this is the way to the kingdom, then each successive trial gives reason to rejoice. Read Pilgrim's Progress. That, that process is this increase in faith that we experience, sanctification. We grow more and more loyal to Christ as we grow closer to Him, and we grow less loyal to the world. We grow more and more in our love for Christ, and our love for the world and the things of this world decreases. We, we see with each successive trial, we see the wretchedness of our own sin, we see, if I had followed my own ideas here, my own instincts, my gut on this one, I would have destroyed everyone. We see that. We see the damage that the wretchedness of our sin causes in us and around us. And at the same time, we also see the beauty of what the Spirit does through us. And so we grow to hate our sin more, and we appreciate the cross more, and we're more and more in awe of God's grace. 
And this continues. This, this process, this sanctification process continues. But it's not a straight line. It's, it's, not, it's not a just... But with each successive trial, faith, faith, think of it this way. Faith is like a muscle, right? You work it, it fatigues. You rest it, it strengthens. You rest it too long, and what happens? Atrophies, gets weaker. Then another trial comes. You work the muscle again. Strain, stress, fatigue, rest, resulting in strength, growth. And this faith-strengthening process comes in, in fits and spurts all through various trials. It draws you nearer to Christ and faith all the way to the point where James says, You're perfect! You see that? Perfect! You're complete! Lacking in nothing! What do you think of that? See that in verse 4? What does he mean by this, verse 4, that we reach? Does he mean that we reach perfection in this life? <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Anybody 70 and older, older can, can laugh cheerfully at that. We do not reach perfection in this life. But it does depend on what you mean by perfection there. See, when we see that word, we laugh because we think of moral perfection, sinlessness. That's not what James is talking about. As long as you are inhabiting Adam's flesh, as long as you are a dirtling in this body of death, you will fight against indwelling sin. But James is not talking about moral perfection here. Perfection in the sense that James uses here has to do with completion. God has in mind for you a completed sanctification process. If you are a lump of clay, as Isaiah and Paul talk about, he is the potter and he is molding you and slicing you and spinning you and forming you into a good and complete work. Or to use another biblical metaphor, he is refining you. Peter talks about this in, in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. He says that God sends us various trials so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, very similar language to James, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so trials then are, for Peter, the fires that burn off the dross so that the faith in us results in our receiving praise and glory and honor at Christ's revelation. In other words, what Peter kind of clarifies for us is that you will know that the trials have had their full effect on you when you are rewarded in eternity and not before then. So this perfection is not this idea where we say, okay, okay, well, I have been through, let's see, I think that was seven trials now. I must have reached 24 karat gold perfection, right? I've been purified. I'm ready. My faith can't possibly be any stronger. Nobody says that. No one, no Christian says that. No, the full effect of, 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 of fire-strengthened faith, the full effect of this is glory. And we can't really measure that in this life because y'all don't look very glorified to me. No, nobody does. We don't reach glory in this life. But it does have its full effect. So before we can get to the next section, look, look more, one more time at verse 4. I want to make sure that you see what James is getting at here. So if this, is, if this is the trajectory that God has for us, we are on this long trail with breaks in between, with lots of trials along the way to strengthen us. We need this strength to get to the next mountain and that mountain's strength to get to the next mountain. This, that's the, the Christian life. What James is basically saying is, don't quit. Look at verse 4. Look at his command. Let steadfastness have its full effect. The imperative is that, this, this, this first few words, let it happen. Let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, that you may finish. Till the race is done, as we sang today. Endure the trials, climb the mountains that God sends, endure the refiner's fire so that God can complete his work in you. He's sanctifying you. 
He's doing the work in you. By his spirit in you, he's strengthening you to mature you, to complete you, to fashion you for your glorification in eternity, for his glory. Let, it, let him do his work. So let's, let's look then at this next section on wisdom because somehow this exhortation that James is giving us has something to do with the word wisdom or the idea of wisdom. So here's how James make the, makes connections. In, in verses 1 and 2, he makes that rejoice, consider it all joy, connection when you meet various trials. And then you have a similar transition in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Do you see the, the, uh, the linking word? Lacking in nothing, lacking in wisdom. If you lack wisdom, which you do because you're not in glory yet, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and will be given to him. So the assumption here is you are lacking in wisdom. But why? Because, because your sanctification is not complete. You, you have not, God has not finished his work in you. If you're sitting here, you're not finished. He's still working in you, and you know it's not complete because you're not in glory yet. And because you're still undergoing this process, this strengthening of the faith, God, because he loves you, will continue to send you trials. When he stops sending you trials, that's when you should worry. But as long as you're enduring trials, you know that the Lord is teaching you and training you and shaping you and fashioning you. But you're going to need wisdom to endure the trials. That's what the connection is between these two passages. So what is this wisdom for enduring trials? First, let me tell you what it's not. It's not we can't reduce wisdom to data or information. In our age, we like to say, if only I just had this information, then everything would be good. So, so if, you, if you didn't study for an exam, you college students, high school students, if you did not study for an exam and you pray and you ask God for the wisdom to know the answers, you're on your own. It, it would have been wise to study. But that's not what wisdom is. It's not just Answers. Wisdom, in, in the sense that James is getting at here, is a very Jewish sense, informed by the Proverbs, informed by Job, informed by the Psalms, informed by the, the, the rabbis of the first century. It has this sense of seeing and understanding things. It's a way of seeing and understanding. That's, that's what wisdom is. And so there is the world's way of seeing and understanding and there's God's way of seeing and understanding. There's worldly wisdom and there is God's wisdom. And they're not the same. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 that the cross is the wisdom and power of God. But the world sees this wisdom, this so-called wisdom of God. They see this as a king dying on a cross. And that's not wisdom. That's, that's foolishness to the world. God sees the cross as the way to redeem his people and the way to complete the mission of the Son of God and, and the way to perfect Jesus as the Messiah through suffering. The wisdom of the world sees the cross as the way to get rid of a troublemaker. So, the, see the difference? The wisdom that comes from God then is, we would call it God's perspective on things, his eternal perspective. In our natural selves, we don't have access to God's eternal perspective. Especially when it comes to our trials or when it comes to suffering. We, in our natural selves, we are like Job and his buddies. Have you read the book of Job before? So Job undergoes horrific suffering at the beginning of the book. And then for the bulk of the book, the, the, the vast part of the middle section of the book, it's these guys philosophizing and speculating over what happened. Why did all these awful things happen to Job? And Job starts and he says, my life is over. I don't know why this is happening. I'm just going to be depressed forever. And these maggots are eating me, sores all over my body. And then one of his friends says, well, this is happening because you're, you're a bad person. And another one says, no, this is happening because of something you did a long time ago, and it's caught up with you. 
That's why this is happening. And then someone else says, well, all of this, what you're undergoing, Job, is actually God's mercy. You deserve a whole lot worse. And throughout the, the saga, you get these little nuggets of truth from Job. These little nuggets of truth from the friends. And what they're teaching, what, they're, what is recorded for us in Job is, is some wisdom from God mixed with a lot of worldly wisdom. Job even mentions at some point that it, that it seems like God is withholding the true wisdom from him. And so the wisdom in this case would be the divine perspective on what's occurring. God's perspective on the trials of Job's life. God, what's going on here? That's the wisdom that James says we need when we're undergoing trials. God's wisdom is what we lack as we grow in maturity in Christ. So when, when we are undergoing trials that are meant to strengthen our faith, the way that we, our faith is strengthened is to see how this trial strengthens our faith. And that only comes from God. God will bring us into trials of various kinds. These trials are meant to, to do this for us, but we need His divine perspective in order to be helped or else they feel like a waste. It just feels like pain. So James says, ask God. That's the, that's a, it's a very simple lesson, isn't it? Ask God. If you know that trials come from God so that he can train you for endurance and strengthen your faith, and that faith that he's given to you, he wants it to grow, he wants it to, to give him glory, then when those trials come, we can rejoice because we know that the trials come from God. And, and, and what we need what we lack is just that one thing, perspective, wisdom. What we need is, is perspective and how we are enduring, how what we are enduring is shaping us. James says, ask him. He'll give it to you generously. Why would he give it to us generously? The trial comes, your faith comes from him. The trial comes from him. The wisdom to endure the trial comes from him. Why? So he can strengthen you, so he can glorify you for his glory. It's, it's all from him. It's all for your salvation. If he has not withheld his son, why would he withhold wisdom? So ask God. It's all a part of this sanctifying process. He wants you to ask him. In fact, trials of various kinds are sent to us so that we will seek him for help and stop relying so much on ourselves. But then we get this little warning, warning in verses 6 through 8. Okay, ask, but don't be double-minded in the way that you ask. This is another play on words. When, when, when James says God gives generously, the word he uses, uses also means that God gives wholly or completely. All that God does, he does in sincerity and unity of mind, unity of being, but we aren't like that. We are divided in our thinking and in our loyalty, and God calls this, or James calls this doubt or, or, or double-mindedness. So look at verses 6 through 8. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything. He's double-minded, unstable. So the Spirit is teaching us here that God is seeking in us a wholeness in our devotion to the Lord. God has a wholeness in his devotion to us. We are to have a devotion to him that is also thorough and, and full and whole. Deuteronomy says, Jesus repeats it, Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, right? That's that complete devotion that is a prerequisite for seeking wisdom, asking God for wisdom. The good news is that this wholehearted devotion also comes from God. This is what the Spirit does in us. The Spirit gives us this love for the Lord, heart, mind, and soul, our whole being. And so when we seek the Lord in the Spirit, we have that. And so He answers one of, the, one of the ways that, that Jesus helps us to understand this double-mindedness, because this is sort of a foreign concept to us, is with the, um, the parable of the talents. Do you remember that when we went through the book of Matthew? So you have these three men who are given uh, an immense uh, sum of money to invest, each one of them. Two of them 
Two of these men have this wholehearted, single-minded devotion to their master. And so they invest what he's given them with joy. But the third servant buries the investment. That's a double-minded man. That's the double-minded man that James is talking about. He, he doesn't know his master. He doesn't love his master. But he does know enough to know that the master is harsh in his punishments. So out of fear, he buries the talent so it won't be lost. Now, when we think about doubt, personally, when we think about doubt because of this age of atheism, we think doubt means to doubt the existence of God. Double-mindedness would be to think God exists and God doesn't exist at the same time. No, no, that's, that's only part of it. Devotion to God in faith means trusting Him, trusting His goodness, His faithfulness, His justice, His love, His provision for us, His wisdom, and His existence. The wicked servant, out of those three servants in that parable, he knew his master existed, and he knew that his master was just, but he did not trust his master's love. So he was double-minded. He had two opinions about his master, one of them true, one of them false. He was split in his loyalties to his master. He's double-minded. Not unlike Adam and Eve in the garden in their temptation. They knew God existed, right? They'd seen him. They knew he was a provider. They have a whole garden full of delights. But in the deception, they were led to believe that God was not wholly, totally good. In the deception, they were led to believe that God was holding something back. And so they were led not to trust him. See, they are like that third servant. They are like the double-minded man that James is talking about here. So when we seek God for wisdom, when we pray and ask God, we must seek him as he is. That's what faith is, seeking him as he is. And how do we know what or who he is, rather? His word reveals it to us. There's a quote that you might have heard before. God's heart is to be trusted, even when his hand cannot be traced. Have you heard that before? God's heart is to be trusted, even when his hand cannot be traced. You think, oh yeah, that's Charles Spurgeon. It's actually not. Spurgeon said it, but he was actually quoting Pastor Smith, our friend, from that Comfort for Christians book. That's where you find that quote. God's heart is to be trusted. That is, we are to trust the nature and the character of God wholeheartedly when we are in trials, when we're seeking him for wisdom. God is good in this. He's not withholding anything good from me. God is to be trusted in this. He wants this for my good. Lord, help me to see what you're doing. And in that trust, we ask him, how are you using this to shape me in Christ's likeness? And then he answers us, and he does show us that his hand can be traced. He shows us what he's doing, that's the wisdom from above. So let's take this wisdom from above, revealed in God's word, and let's do a trial run with these trials. All right? There, remember, there are trials going, we're in part three now. The trials within us, the trials without us. Trials within us are the trials of the soul and the trials of the body. The trials without us, the, those trials that come from outside of us are those trials in the church and those trials in the world. Let's start with a trial within what Pastor Smith calls a violent conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And some of you know exactly what this is. You have felt it. You have experienced it this week. This is a trial that takes place on the battlefield of your soul. It is... This trial, this violent conflict between the flesh and the spirit, this is to be so overcome with, with fears and anxieties that you are nearly disabled. And the reason it's a conflict is because at the same time, you know the truth about God. Holy, completely. You know he's your provider. You know that he loves you. You know that he's your redeemer. You know that you are justified in Christ. You know all the stuff that you read in the scriptures. Intellectually, you have memorized Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Do not be anxious about anything. The father clothes the lilies of the fields. He feeds the sparrows. You're more valuable than that to him. You've memorized that. 
You've written it down. You've re- you're reciting it. And yet at the same time, this wave of what Pastor Smith calls this wave of a thousand fears has crashed over you. This violent conflict in your soul. This is a trial. And this is one of the trials of various kinds that James is talking about. Now, I want to be careful here. God is not tempting you to be anxious in that trial. We're going to see later on in James that God does not tempt us to sin. And yet, 1 Corinthians 10 says, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So it's true God does not tempt us to sin, but it's also true that God allows you to be tempted in this way. And this is one of the trials that God is using to sanctify you. And so you, you ask, well, why, why? Why is the Lord ordained that I would undergo this trial week in and week out that he might sanctify you? So, let him endure it. Seek him in his goodness, as I know you are. Meditate on the truth that that through the work of Christ you've been adopted. God is your father. Your father gives generously. He provides you what you need. And so what James also says here is, ask him for wisdom. How will you encounter this wave of a thousand fears? Ask him for wisdom. And I will tell you this, I will not and cannot promise you that you will never be struck with this wave again. Because you likely will be struck with a wave of 2,000 fears next time. But as you endure these violent waves of anxiety that torment you, and as you see God's goodness remain true when the wave passes, and you see that he's faithful, what does James say will happen? Faith will grow. It will strengthen. More and more you will grow to trust the Lord. Your faith will be strengthened. That's one of these inner trials. What about trials of the body? Weakness and pain, as Pastor Smith says. How does God use these trials, weakness and pain, to strengthen our faith? Why does cancer exist? Or any terminal illness for that matter. Or the aging process. Aging is a terminal illness, isn't it? Why do we have to go from relatively healthy and upright to unable to see to drive to unable to climb the stairs to unable to get off the couch to unable to get off the bed? If God is going to take us, and He's probably going to take you, why not just let this, why not, why can't we just be 25 for 60 years? These are what aging and sickness and weakness is. It's a slow separation from the world. Much slower than a bullet, much slower than getting hit by a bus, but just as certain. One of the areas of false hope in us, one of the reasons we have to endure the aging and sickness process, because one of the areas of false hope in us is our strength, our beauty, our bodies, our intellect, and so weakness of the body, pain in the body, memory loss, these are trials, trials that God uses to move our trust from ourselves to him, and it's sanctifying. So let him do it. Endure the trial. It's for your good. Get old, get tired, get sick. It's good for you. God is giving you more time to seek him in his word, to seek him in prayer. He's subduing your pride. He's correcting your foolishness. He's humbling your heart and your self-dependence and your self-reliance, and he's preparing you, training you for eternity with him. Let him do it and seek his wisdom. Seek his wisdom and not your own. And so in the wisdom that he gives you in your age and in your sickness and in your weakness, Be a blessing to others. There are, you know this, there's two types of old people. The grumbly kind and the joyful kind. 
All of them are forgetful, but there are grumbly ones and joyful ones. The grumblers, the grumblers are those who have not responded to the trials of the body with faith and wisdom. The joyful are those who have had all that they have had stripped away from them and yet are rejoicing because they're nearer to Christ in the process. Their faith is strengthened and they're a blessing to the rest of us. They're a blessing to the church. Speaking of the church, this is one of the trials without. Pastor Smith said there are, there are trials in the church. And I can imagine if New Park Street Church was just a handful of people when Spurgeon got there, Pastor Smith was the man under whom that church became small. And there's no doubt he endured a lot to lead to what he said. Trials of the church are depressing and discouraging. And yet in the church, the Lord has surrounded us with people to annoy us and frustrate us and make us angry and bewildered. People who will tempt us to say that following Christ is not worth it. But what does James say? Consider it pure joy. God is surrounding you with a diversity of people who are not like you to take away your desire to control everyone and everything. He's surrounding you with the very people who will teach you what his mercy is, what his love is, what sacrifice means. He's giving you, with the body of Christ, ample opportunities to give and to be generous and to take away your love for money and your love of comfort and your love of privacy. He's showing you in the church just how great it is that a man went to die on the cross for these people. People come and go in the church, right? Especially in a big city, a transient city, and it's hard to see people move. We, as we pray for the Siazes today, we pray for those who, who are moving, but there are also people who leave the church without moving. These are, there, there are, there are, troubling departures from the church. One of the more troubling, troubling departures from our church was in my first year here. Older couple left because they were, and I'm quoting the husband, there were too many young people. And he said, we just want to go somewhere where the people are more like us. And that bothered me. Not because they were leaving. Uh, if, if they're going and are going to go grow in Christ somewhere, praise God. But I actually looked up to this guy. And it bothered me to see him not acknowledge what God was doing with the people who were coming to the church for his own good. He preferred the creature comforts rather than the trials of living with people who God was using to complete him. So brothers and sisters, let God use the people he surrounded you with to complete you in Christ. All right, so lastly, there are what Pastor Smith says, trials of the world. And this is the one that we typically think of when we think of trials. And he says, these are enough to make us weep day and night. Now, the first order trials of the world would be persecution. James is writing to a, a people, a church, who are persecuted. And so he's encouraging them in their persecutions. Jesus underwent persecution. The early church endured persecution. The, this letter is written to people who are enduring persecution. All of the New Testament letters are, are, are this way. But, but, as, but as we know that the, the fires of persecution have diminished for us for a time. They're being stoked right now, but they're not back yet to the point they were in the first century. So there are these trials of persecution, but there are also second order trials of the world, all the wicked things that we see around us. We see the, the horrors of the state promotion of the murder of children. We see the, the, the pride month and all that that entails. There's injustice, burdensome taxes, loss of a job, an unfair boss, the death of a child, the death of a spouse. These are all trials of the world. But even, even the neighbor's dog barking at night 
a, a mosquito buzzing in your ear, anything outside of us that distresses us and tests our temper, anything that requires patience, these are the trials of the world. And for all of this, wisdom is required. Some more wisdom than others. But all of this requires God's perspective so that we can respond in faithfulness and that the Spirit can mature us in our faith. Let me end with Acts 14 because this well sums up all that James is saying here. Acts 14 verses 21 through 23. And what we're seeing in Acts is basically what is being revealed to be normal. This is the normal Christian life. This is the expected Christian life. So in Acts, wherever new churches are planted, and then Paul and Barnabas returned, this is what we see happening. Verse 21 of Acts 14, 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, that's through the preaching of the word, encouraging them to continue in the faith, that's through discipleship, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, so that's, that's the early church. That's the Christian life as recorded in the New Testament. Churches receive the gospel, they gather with the church, they are encouraged in the faith, strengthened in the faith, and every week they're reminded that the way to the kingdom is through trials. Every single week. Whenever they see an apostle, whenever they see a letter from an apostle, whenever they heard preaching from the apostolic message, the way to the kingdom is through trials. Therefore, what the apostles did was was to urge the church to continue under the leadership of the elders and in prayer and fasting. And that's, that's church. That's the Christian life. We should expect it and rejoice in it.